Hello and welcome to this audio program from the World Economic Forum. My name is Mike Hanley and today's topic is climate action, in particular in the context of the 21st Conference of the Parties, or COP21, taking place in Paris. Governments from around the world are coming together to discuss ways to collectively limit the output of carbon and other greenhouse gases to a level that will prevent the world's climate from warming by more than 2 degrees Celsius. It's an ambitious objective, but one that's crucial for a better world. It also has powerful support. Just a week ago, the World Economic Forum published an open letter from some 78 CEOs of global corporations around the world from 20 economic sectors calling upon governments to take bold action at the Paris Climate Conference, COP21 in December, to secure a more prosperous world for us all. Ahead of these crucial meetings in Paris, we recently held an issue briefing asking some experts whether a global solution to climate change is even possible, and if it is, what needs to be done to make it happen. In this episode, we'll hear that issue briefing. In particular, we'll be hearing from Lars Josefsson, a professor at the Brandenburg University of Technology in Germany, Changhua Wu, the director for Greater China of the Climate Group, a not-for-profit organisation aiming for a prosperous, low-carbon future, Carl Ganter, Managing Director at the Circle of Blue, a team of journalists and scientists who provide information about the world's resource crises, and Daniel Zarin, Director of Programs at the Climate and Land Use Alliance, an organisation that seeks to realise the potential of forested and agricultural landscapes to mitigate climate change. The moderator of the discussion is Oliver Kahn, a colleague of mine in the public engagement team here at the World Economic Forum. And now over to the panel. First of all, Chenghua Huawei, perhaps you could give us your view on the roads to Paris so far. The global leaders will be gathered in Paris with all the negotiators, different parties. I think the momentum is on, uh, that everyone is trying to contribute to the process to make sure the international process will remain uh, active uh, so that we have that sort of foundation platform so everyone could come together and you know, figure out how to solve the global challenges of climate change issues. Uh, in the last couple of years, particularly this year, and if you look at the momentum building up, you know, the INDC intended nationally determined contributions, the sort of bottom-up actions, uh, we pretty much gathered the majority of them already. I think I, I haven't checked the number this morning, but at least yesterday there were about 164 nations already submitted uh, their commitments actually to the Paris process. If you look at uh, business community, there are more than six million companies already committing to all kinds of sustainability goals. And if you look at the subnational governments, actually, they are also committing to join the leagues. So this momentum is on that offers the optimistic sort of view that uh, no matter how difficult the international process negotiation will be, but somehow the willingness, the desire to collaborate is on the table so that hopefully in six weeks' time or seven weeks, actually, we're going to really reach a certain agreement, at least actually at the starting point, to really work together to address this issue. Many people ask to say, would this say 
be enough. I think we, if you look at it, all the INDCs by different countries put on the table, definitely it's a far off from the two degrees Celsius, the target the international agreement, uh, the community agreed in Copenhagen, but somehow uh, from my personal view, I think it's a good starting point. I think we need to create a sort of incentives mechanism in the international process to make sure countries will aim high. And uh, so at least actually we're going to have something coming out of the Paris process. I think that's a good starting point to work with. I mean, just reading the papers, it's, it seems that everybody wants this to succeed. Uh, uh, ten uh, Catholic bishops signed a letter in the, in the paper this morning. There are vast numbers of business groups, as you mentioned, signing, signing pledges and, and cooperating. And yet, talks aren't without the bumps in the road. There have been uh, disappointing talks in, in Bonn just in the past couple of days. So is it possible we'll, nothing will come out of these talks? I, I wouldn't really. I think, I think the international negotiation process is always complicated uh, because it has to take into consideration all kinds of proposals from different countries, from different interest groups. So that's normal. I don't think that to say, oh, it's complicated, then we're going to fail. Rather, I see that as a normal process. I think if you look at Bonn, and now we have something like 34 pages with a lot of brackets, actually uncertainty included, rather than this nine, you know, shorter version, nine page, shorter version, uh, that's going to be submitted actually to the Paris process. Uh, that tells about a couple of things. One, uh, it won't be easy meaning there's still a lot of uh, you know, proposals, the interests, and uh, people desire to be included in the, in the Paris process. In the meantime, actually, if you look at the details, so if you, you look at market-based instruments, if you look at uh, uh, you know, different elements actually being included, you know, expanded version, I do not see them as necessarily a bad thing, a negative thing. It's more like I say, we need to consider all those different elements and so make sure somehow we include them and so everybody will be willing to join the league actually to take actions rather than say, okay, I'm going to only take into consideration those interests, those elements while ignoring the others actually. So I definitely see that as a positive, constructive process even though it's difficult. Lars Josephson, you're a professor at Brandenburg University of Technology in Germany. You're a member of our decarbonizing Energy Council. You've been very busy over the past uh, past months in the council, putting together guidelines and and, and, and a report um, outlining the state of play and, and, and offering a path forward for decarbonising. What are your what are your views? What do you want to see happen um, in the in the realm of technology to decarbonise the energy? Yeah, let me. Glad you mentioned the report which we issued here. The white paper scaling technologies to decarbonise energy was uh, released uh, yesterday. Uh, which I think is uh, hopefully gives a great picture of what is possible from the technology point of view. Um, it is our deep conviction that uh, we will never be able to handle uh, the climate change issue without uh, technology, new technologies. Uh, so this is a must. But then, if we if we take stock of what has happened over the last last years, and I think somebody, some people think that we have moved very slowly. I would, I would take the other view because if you look at solar and wind, for instance, we moved fantastically rapid. We, we, uh, we have uh, achieved a lot in the last 20 years. And why is this? Well, this is because it's been a political win. Why has that been a political will? Well, because it, it's, really, it's really uncontroversial. There is uh, the public understands and, uh, and it's a political uh, backing, a will, and it's easy to say, and then most, most politicians say, and by the way, you customers, you will pay. 
So, so, so there we have achieved a lot in the last 20 years. Unfortunately, this is not the only thing we need to do. So the more complicated things have been then pushed to the back. And, and we raise those in this report because there are clearly areas where, where it's much more difficult because looking at electricity, we need decarbonized baseload uh, electricity. Unfortunately, solar and wind is not baseload, it's intermittent uh, electricity. If we should get decarbonized baseload electricity, we have to uh, have a renewed look at nuclear, for instance, which is in many parts of the world a very controversial issue. But as we point out in the report, it now seems actually realistic that we can move relatively rapidly into the fourth generation of nuclear, solving most of the problems of the present generation. And I, I suppose one could think that the petrochemical industry has had 100 years to optimize itself, and we're asking wind and solar to optimize itself in, in 20 or, 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 or less years. But even so, with the technology we have at hand and the, the, the timeline horizon, we need to get these big projects like CCS, like Advanced Nuclear, up and running. I know uh, my home country, the UK, it's been discussed at the moment in, in, the, in the context of a 10, 20-year program. Do we have enough on the table right now to make a, a meaningful contribution to the goals that are going to be discussed and hopefully achieved in, in Paris in December? In my opinion, I think we can have um, uh, the, the fourth generation of advanced nuclear commercialized in 10 years, which is a very, very short uh, time period. And if we can then have uh, multiple nations and companies involved in this, we could, we could also scale up relatively quickly. So in, in the timescales we're talking about, this is incredibly fast. But, but that, uh, I mean, the basis to do that would be a concerted effort in many countries working together with many companies at the same time. Daniel Zarin, you're a member of the Forestry Council, and you're also the director of programs at the Climate and Land Use Alliance in the USA. What do you want to see happen in Paris and, and going forward, possibly outside of Paris, in a separate process to protect forests in the world? Interestingly enough, the, the topic of forests has, has probably gotten more progress in the international process than, than um, many of the areas that are seen as more in the mainstream climate agenda. There's been a very uh, effective development of the, the rules, um, the processes, the safeguards around an initiative that goes under the heading of reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, so-called Red Plus. Um, so the, the, the architecture is largely there. There are big issues in Paris with forests as with other issues around finance. Um, and there are questions around the, the timing and, and so on. But we do have in place remarkable, really, example of cooperation uh, between developed countries and developing nations in terms of partnership, working together, developing that, that process. Now, is that, is that enough? Um, it's certainly not enough for us to uh, realize the potential that exists there for reducing emissions from the, the sector. If tropical deforestation were a country or a region in terms of emissions, it's about equal to the European Union. So this is a very, very significant source of emissions and one where there are real opportunities to achieve reductions in the near term and achievements that actually have proof of concept. We've seen in, in Brazil, for example, probably the largest single emission reductions of any nation over the past decade 
occurring with respect to the drop in deforestation in the Amazon basin by uh, almost 80%. And, and the demonstration in the proof of concept that that can happen at the same time as agricultural production has gone up in the same region, essentially closing the frontier, uh, stimulating intensification of production. Um, so we have very effective examples. And at the same time, though, we have real crises going on in the world. The, cri the climate crisis of this year is going on right now in Indonesia. Uh, we have this is above and beyond that European Union size uh, emissions. We have, for the past six to eight weeks, emissions uh, from fires in Indonesian peatlands that are on a daily basis equal to the average daily emissions, or really above the average daily emissions from the entire US economy. Um, as of last week, reaching the amount of emissions that are coming annually from Japan have occurred just from, from these fires just this year. Uh, these are fires that are caused by uh, illegally set, land, illegal land clearing that's um, done for the expansion of palm oil or wood fiber production. They're terrible fires because they're occurring on peatland that as part of the land preparation is drained in order to make the land adequate for growing those crops, and that drainage means that peat, which is really, geologically speaking, a precursor for coal, is very ignitable, particularly in years like this one where we have very strong El Ninos, and the fires burn underground. So they really can't be put out until it's rained for a while. So we have a very, very serious situation in terms of climate that at the same time, and even more immediately, is causing the worst public health crisis in Indonesia since the 2004 tsunami affecting tens of millions of Indonesians and, and uh, citizens of neighboring countries as well, billions of dollars in cost to the Indonesian economy. But even there, we, we now have uh, a very, very, very interesting leadership emerging from the Indonesian president who has put forward uh, some steps that are really unprecedented um, in that country, steps that are, first of all, confronting the immediate crisis, secondly, um, imposing very serious accountability on those who have been responsible for the, the fires, and thirdly, putting forward policy to, to really address the underlying causes. So even in the past week, President Joko Widodo has been announcing a comprehensive moratorium on the clearing of peatland and a major commitment to restoration of peatland, including blocking these drainage canals to re-wet these areas so that they won't be able to ignite, cause a similar catastrophe in the future. So we see, we see challenges, but we see response, um, uh, proactive responses, examples from, from major uh, countries that are, that are significant greenhouse gas emitters as their economies are growing. And uh, they're they're making progress towards growing their economies in ways that are climate friendly, that address the really what need to be looked at as kind of twinned goals of food security and climate security. And you have best practices emerging in Brazil and you have uh, an ongoing crisis in Indonesia, albeit one that looks like it may be turning around. But is this a global governance issue that we don't have, a, we don't have an architecture in place to, 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 to stop this happening elsewhere? Well, it's a, it's, it certainly is a governance issue. It's certainly a governance issue at, at the national level and subnational level in the countries that are to, to whom these forests belong. The, the global governance side of it is um, one in which we do see some progress in terms of the global community 
essentially acting to reinforce governance at the national level. So uh, perhaps the best example of this that we have now is around the illegal timber trade, where in uh, both Europe, the US, and a growing number of examples in importing countries, we have the architecture of very strong laws that, that place um, burden on the, on the importers to ensure that, that the product that they are importing was produced, harvested legally in the country of, of origin. So it's not imposing any kind of, mm -hmm. sort of global uh, or, or uh, foreign standard on the producing country, but rather reinforcing uh, national law. That seems to be uh, growing in effectiveness. The, the EU has a very significant and important program in the area of forest legality, governance, and trade. In the U.S., just this past week, the, the largest suit was just settled against a large company called Lumber Liquidators, in which they've pled guilty in this area. So there is, we do see real progress on that front around the trade issues as well. And important areas to develop further and that we see with attention in, uh, in China, where, where there is growing attention to this issue around legality and really a need for the uptake of at least a kind of analogous structures around, uh, around importation in China, since China is really a kind of the world's major hub of import and subsequent export in terms of uh, taking in raw materials, uh, processing, and then exporting uh, finished or semi-finished wood products. Carl Ganser, you're the managing director of Circle of Blue, based in the US, and a member of our Water Council. What do we need to know about water as we, as we head towards Paris? Well, everything. Um, so I'm a journalist, and I was in uh, COP15 in Copenhagen, and you know, watched the, the talks unfold, but also watched it from the journalist's perspective. And the story was really hard to enter. It was a very complicated issue, as we all know. And so uh, a, a pack of very interested reporters with very complicated stories to tell. Well, the good news and bad news is, is that now we have the water story. We also have much more visible changes. I mean, right now we have the big story in Indonesia that is a story that we can tell. So on the waterfront, over the last really eight years, we've seen some transitions um, as far as thinking goes. So it used to be just talking about water supply, water for food. Now we're talking about a water nexus, a water, food, energy, climate nexus. So you, you have this interconnection between all four. And in a sense, a mantra that we're really in our council and you know, across the water world are talking about is you can't talk about one without talking about the other. So let me tell a little story from Inner Mongolia. So we do a lot of, a lot of work you know, in scenario sessions and whatnot, but I like to get out in the field. And so I went to Inner Mongolia, one of the epicenters for climate change, the big open pit coal mines, Shiling Hot Inner Mongolia. And I wanted to just to see, you know, what do these places look like? And so I found a shepherd family, and uh, I went to their home, and their wells were going dry. Their wells were going dry because of the coal mines, right? The six coal mines, some of the largest in the world. And the next day, the family took me out to their gur, their, little, their yurt out in the prairie in the grasslands. And I got up at sunrise and hiked up these little sand dunes. Now, these are, the, these are supposed to be the grasslands of the world. These are little sand dunes that we're standing on. I'm watching the sunrise. And the daughter comes out and stands there, and she's wondering where I disappeared to. And uh, so we watch this, and we see the sand. And then the next evening, we go into town, and there's a performance um, of and it's a beautiful video of grasslands, et cetera. And I, I type out on my phone, my Google Translate, because I don't speak Mongolian or, or Chinese fluently. 
And I say, can you take me there next time? These beautiful green grasslands. And she turns pale white. And she, set, she types on her Google Translate on her iPhone and says, is no longer. And I say, why? And she says, not since the disaster. So right now we're seeing water as, in a sense, the front, one of the frontline stories, one of the most important stories in this nexus of water, food, and energy. And we're also seeing uh, on, the, on the waterfront and in the journalism world, we're always looking for the next story. And the next big story is groundwater. And it's almost like climate change. It's very hard to grasp because we can't see it. But now we're starting to see the impacts of that in California and in North India, even in, in North Africa and other parts of the world. So, you know, how are we going to feed our population when we're drawing on groundwater supplies because our snowpacks, say, in the, in the American West, in the Sierras, are at 4 to 6% of historical levels? So we have, from the journalistic perspective, a big story unfolding that we can finally see. So the optimistic side of that is that when we can see the stories, we can act on them, and we can move the public to act better, and we can move beyond uh, very ethereal concepts of carbon trading, which we all understand, but is very hard to tell as a story, into what this actually means to people, whether, it's, whether you're a Native American uh, community in Arizona, or whether you're a farmer in Punjab. Well, let's just go back to looking at the, you know, the, the path forward. And, and please feel free to make comments. Emerging markets are going to be key to uh, grappling all of these issues of forestry, for new technologies, for you know, keeping you know, economies gunning, gunning along, but at the same time being sustainable, not making the same mistakes that advanced economies have done in the in previous industrial relation periods for water. What are we seeing here? We're also seeing you know, bringing back to the real world, you know, the, the economy is slowing down in many of these markets too. What, what kind of level of complexity and difficulty does this add to the whole process? Uh, a couple of ways of looking at it, particularly I work in China, so the China, I think China's story is a sort of good reflection of the complexity, you know, on the positive end, also probably potentially on the negative side there as well. I think after Copenhagen, the international process, basically, one thing actually Copenhagen did is really the awakening uh, of the international community among the different countries, among the society about the climate change risk. So it's recognized as a major global challenges. So that sort of awareness exists today, even though there are still climate skeptics, whatever, but I think the majority actually uh, tend to agree that climate change is a big uh, issue. Uh, China definitely became the largest emitter in 2007. And since then, actually, if you look at it, say we continue to be the largest emitter. And if you look at the absolute contribution on an annual basis, actually, the new growth of emi emissions, China contributed to about more than half, actually, of the global emissions, which is really a saddening you know, story. And uh, it's a huge burden on this sort of, a, the, the, you know, the largest emerging economy in the world today, rising to the second largest economy today of the world. And so on one side, of course, we need to grow because it's a developing country. And so people need to get better life, quality of life, wealth, whatever. On the other side, actually, we have to deal with actually global challenges like climate change issues, which is also linked actually to air pollution, environmental issues, challenges in China. So that's where China has gradually coming out of the situation, basically saying, okay, uh, this is the reality, particularly because actually the society, the public does not like where we've been, you know, where we were, and we need to figure out the way out. So the momentum building up in terms of addressing, you know, domestic challenge, but also global challenge, interesting enough, China is a showcase of the alignment, perfect alignment, actually. It's not just addressing carbon issues, rather we have to address actually carbon issues, energy issues, water issues, food issues, forestry, everything actually together. 
so if you look at China, China's commitment to the international process, we said for the first time, finally, we said we're going to manage to peak their emissions no later than 2030. Uh, in the plan, if you look at the details, actually, not only say capping the emissions, but also say how do we achieve that? So we are putting more emphasis on you know, energy efficiency, renewable energy, clean technologies, uh, you name it, we pretty much pull together. It's not just addressing environmental issues, rather this is how we're going to grow our economy differently, uh, away actually from where we've been actually in the last three decades or so. The, the lessons we learned actually, and uh, basically saying, okay, what have ever happened in other developed countries over the industrialization process, uh, we cannot carry on like that. We re exactly repeated the mistakes. We said we call them mistakes. That's why we ended up where we are today. So now is a critical moment, you know, sort of driven by all the momentum globally, domestically, we need to shift. And last, presumably, great leapfrogging potential for emerging countries to, to adapt and adopt new technologies. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to, wanted to raise a special uh, aspect of it, which we discussed and, and uh, worked out a concept in our, um, in our council, and that is looking at the people who doesn't have any energy access at all, or very uh, unreliable. Because there, of course, number one priority, they, they should have energy access. Number two priority, they should have decarbonized energy access. Our concept was that if we look at, at the individual household and the products and technology, uh, products not, but technology are there in actually to give them affordable energy access. The problem is that there is no market. And the problem is that uh, until now, there's been no way to accumulate the demands of millions of households. But if we can do that, we will create a market big enough for big, uh, big companies uh, to develop customized products for that household. And if we do that, interestingly enough, we create an energy access module. And you can, you can make the comparison with a piece of Lego because then we can add the Lego pieces and suddenly we have a bottom-up, very strong energy system. To me, this is an intriguing possibility that we would like to push forward because we know there is a lot of goodwill and this is part of all international organizations because the energy access people for the low-income people is, is a great problem or a big problem in the international negotiations. How do we serve these people? Or how do we enable them to empower their own future? Yeah, I was going to say, that's exactly the one of the same issues we're dealing with in our council on the water side, is how do we provide access to clean and safe drinking water? And we've made huge gains in that side in looking at water and sanitation globally. Um, and one of the risks is we've made huge gains, but now we're faced with climate change. So we really do have to, we have to manage our water much more with much greater innovation and also with much more entrepreneurship um, on the ground. But, you know, there are a billion people on the planet, I'm rounding up, but that don't have access to safe drinking water. And when we bring access to safe drinking water and we, when we provide that water security, we provide much more stability for, you know, just geopolitical stability. Dan, what are your views yeah. here from a forestry <clears throat> perspective? As, as we look at these issues it's, uh, you know, and step back from really even just the immediate crisis, the climate change crisis, and, and recognize where this comes from, right? We, we start from a, a need to understand that we live in a world that is characterized by major market failures and governance failures across the board at all levels. And to address this, this crisis that we're in, it's not just about governments. 
and there is an enormous role for private sector to be playing, enormous roles for civil society to be playing in this space. You've been listening to this audio program from the World Economic Forum. To read the full open letter to governments signed by CEOs from global companies around the world, go to agenda.weforum.org. To hear all of our podcasts, visit agenda.weforum.org or listen to us on SoundCloud. That's all from this week, and the topic was climate action. My name is Mike Hanley. Hear us again next week. Until then, take care.